My name is John Huggins. I'm the chaplain at Berry College. And uh, Brian had asked me to substitute and preach again this week. Thanks for that. <clears throat> Happy 11th day of Christmas to those of you who are keeping track. We just, uh, that was a good timing on pushing the kids on to Sunday school before we remind them that it's still the Christmas season, uh, liturgically speaking, <clears throat> for a couple more days. Um, I've enti- I titled this message, Let Earth Receive Her King, um, taking that from my favorite Christmas hymn, which is Joy to the World. <clears throat> Anyone else in here have, uh, is that your favorite Christmas hymn? Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Everything it says in that hymn is just proclaiming uh, the gospel. He rules the world with truth and grace. I love this hymn. So the title of this message is Let Earth Receive Her King, Reflections on Joy to the World. Before I begin, I just want to say a short prayer. Our gracious God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Please sow your word deep in our heart. Enable me to proclaim that Jesus is king in such a way that we receive joy in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. So last week I talked about uh, how God is with us. That um, perhaps more than anything, the, uh, the Christmas message is that. That God is with us. And we look throughout the scriptures at various times in which God says specifically to people that he is with them. Um, And it's as if he's saying, when he says that, he's saying, that's all you need. That's all you need for whatever obstacle you're facing, whatever hardship you're going through. To know that God is with you is the richest truth a person can know. Because it's the thing that makes all the difference in the world. Uh, today, I want us to, uh, to think about the question, continuing with a Christmas theme. I know some of you have already like, taken down your decorations and everything. You've already moved on into the new year. You've already broke your New Year's resolution. And you're like, come on, man. Like, Christmas was over a long time ago. Uh, and I'm going to keep this theme going a little bit f- further. We've already taken down our Christmas stuff, too. Uh, that's a liturgical fail. But, uh, we, uh, <clears throat> you know, the Christmas break doesn't work so well. Hey, thanks. Uh, in terms of your kids going back to school and having time to take that stuff down. But I want us to ask the question, uh, what does it mean for Jesus to be the king? That's something we uh, talk a lot about, especially at Christmas. And we tend to talk about it more at Christmas than any other time of the year. Uh, We focus on the kingship aspect of Jesus. Uh, Even at Easter, which Easter is actually a great kingly holiday too because it, it, it celebrates Jesus' victory over all the things that are evil, over death, over sin. Uh, and it's a celebration. But we tend to focus a little bit more on Jesus' priestly aspects. What I mean is his sacrifice for sin and its removal from us because of his intercession and that his resurrection means that he lives forever to intercede for us. All oh, that's very true and good. Uh, But sometimes we lose sight of the kingship of Jesus. In fact, I want to emphasize it and perhaps overemphasize it this morning to counterbalance uh, uh, what I perceive to be an imbalance in general Christianity. Um, Sometimes in traditional theology, we talk about Jesus being our prophet, priest, and king. We refer to these three things as the three offices of Christ, or the three main roles he plays in the world. He is the true prophet who, when he speaks, God is speaking. 
He's the true priest and that he makes the final and ultimate offering for sin that's good forever and intercedes for us forever. And he's the king in that he rules and defends us. Uh, But I think that the kingship aspect gets minimized, not so much here at Seven Hills Fellowship, but in Christianity in general, uh, and therefore in the way we live our week-a-day lives. Um, you, can un- you can see that in this sort of typical way that the gospel is, or I should say, the way the gospel is sometimes shared or talked about. It's talked about as like this. There is a great and powerful God who's also good. We are sinners because we've rebelled against this God. So God sent his son Jesus to die for our sins so that our sins could be forgiven. We could be reconciled to God if we repent of those sins. Trust in what Jesus did on the cross will be forgiven and have eternal life. Sound pretty good? Well, all of that is certainly true. But it also greatly reduces what the gospel is. Where is the king or the kingdom in in that statement? Those things may be uh, profoundly and vitally true. But the, but, me, but the truth that Jesus it has come to be our king is also a vital aspect of the gospel that we neglect to our own malnourishment and perhaps peril. <clears throat> the gospel proclaims a king and a kingdom. And in fact, if you had to choose any one of those three things, prophet, priest, or king, which the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John emphasize, it is the kingly aspect. In fact, in, from one perspective, that may be the most appropriate primary role to think of Jesus. Um, he comes as the anointed one, the Messiah. And he is a king who takes on a priestly role and who happens to be also the prophet of God. I want you to see this in the way that the scripture talks about him. And so we'll look first at uh, the gospel announcement to Mary. <clears throat> when the angel tells Mary who Jesus will be, this is in Luke chapter 1. Uh, Verses 30 through 33. See here that it says, uh, And the angel says to her, that's Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end end so the first way he jesus is introduced to his mother uses these three words throne reign kingdom he will be the son of god but also the son of david what does that mean what's the connection to david talk about that in just a second it's important to know uh, in matthew's gospel the very first line of matthew's gospel opens in this wonderful way the genealogy of jesus christ son of david Son of Abraham. It gives you two of Jesus' key ancestors. Now, Jesus isn't the direct. Uh, it's not as if David is his father and Abraham's his grandfather directly, but they're his two most Im- important ancestors uh, for the things for Jesus' mission, for understanding who Jesus was. He was coming to be that son of David who would rule over God's people forever. We'll see where that is in a minute. And the one who would bring the blessing of Abraham to the world, to all the nations. So throne, reign, kingdom. What's the background for understanding Jesus as a king or the kind of kingdom he's bringing? 
I want you to see two important Old Testament passages. The first one is Second uh, Samuel chapter seven, and this is where God makes a, uh, gives covenant promises to David. He binds himself to David's lineage, saying that one of David's sons would essentially rule over God's people people forever. And see how the let's look at how the passage reads. And now this is right after David had wanted to build a temple to build a house for God. And God comes to him and says, you're not going to build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you. And it's going to look like this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So when the gospel of Luke says that he will be, he will receive the throne of his father, David, it's a way of saying Jesus is that son of David talked about in second Samuel seven. He is the true king. Another important passage for background is Daniel chapter seven. So it's easy to remember second Samuel seven, Daniel seven. When you go to Daniel seven, this is when Daniel's having a vision And in the vision, he sees God, who he refers to as the ancient of days. And that someone like a human figure, when he calls one like a son of man, comes and stands before God. And let's see what happens. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that is God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, if you've read the Gospels, you know that Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself is as the Son of Man. If you read uh, early uh, Second Temple uh, Jewish literature or literature that's written in between the Old and New Testaments, uh, you can you can gather that Daniel was popular reading during the time of Jesus, in part because there were people trying to figure out the 70 weeks stuff and trying to understand the restoration of uh, uh, <clears throat> that is talked about in the book of Daniel. But also understanding the son of man is not simply a way of saying that uh, Jesus is a human, but it has more of a technical sense in people's minds. It doesn't it doesn't connote or cause them to think about Jesus being a human, but about him being this figure, this apocalyptic figure, one who at some point would receive from God the kingdom that all nations, the whole earth comes to serve and worship him. Well, these two things make up uh, two key passages for understanding who Jesus is. And to say that Jesus is the son of David is to say that he's the king. To say that Jesus is the son of man is to say he's the king from both of these passages. Now, in the Old Testament, only God is the ultimate king, the ultimate sovereign. In fact, all the kings of Israel and Judah were to think of themselves not as demigods or quasi-divine figures, uh, ultimate authorities. They were to think of themselves as like vice regents, serving under the great king of the universe, executing his will among their people, uh, reigning in righteousness and and justice as God defines it, not as they would define it. And so God is proclaimed to be the king in the Old Testament as in these two passages, Psalm 22 and 24. Let's see those. uh, For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. 
but not just over one nation, uh, Israel or Judah, but over the world. And then again, who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So if in the Old Testament, the emphasis is on God is the sovereign one. That is to say, he has all authority and power and the right to rule. All of that is assigned to Jesus in the New Testament. He is the one who has all authority, the right to rule, all the power. And usually the uh, sometimes the word king is used straightforwardly like this, but the most common title used for Yahweh in the Old Testament for Jesus in the New is the word Lord, or Adonai, Kurios. It's a way of saying Jesus is identified with the God of the Old Testament, and God exercises his kingship through this person, Jesus. Okay, so when we get to the gospel, God's kingship is coming to bear on the earth in a new and fresh way. It's a way that was anticipated in the Old Testament, but it's now becoming a reality. And to say that his kingship is coming to bear on the earth means that God is moving to rescue, to redeem, and to exert his rule upon the earth in a new way, in a way that's going to gain victory over sin and death. It's going to, and he's going to do this by establishing his kingdom. Uh, and part of the reason I'm saying this is to try to help you see that the gospel is much more than just like a self-help program. I need a way to get my conscience clear. I need a way to kind of get my, to take the heaviness off my heart because of my sin. Well, nothing will do that better than the gospel. But the gospel is much more than that. It's nothing short of full-scale redemption of new creation starting now. And I'm wanting you to see that the kingship or the the kingly identity of Jesus is vital to the gospel and what makes it good news. Let's just look at a couple other passages that demonstrate uh, this reality. <clears throat> In Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, when Jesus starts to preach, he connects the idea of God's kingdom coming and the gospel uh, together <clears throat> when he says this. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Well, what was he saying? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see the connection, kingdom, and gospel. We sometimes think of these as two separate things. The gospel is about sort of getting into heaven or getting eternal life. And then the kingdom is sort of something else. It's it's like discipleship uh, when you start thinking about living as a Christian. Rather than understanding that the gospel itself is a proclamation that there is a king. And that ruler is Jesus. And the invitation to repent is to come under his lordship, not just to receive kind of a, 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 you know, something soothing for our conscience. That's a big part of it. Yes, I don't want to throw that away, but it's also about coming to surrender one's life to another authority, not just our our own. In Matthew chapter 6, we see that the central prayer of the church has to do with God's kingdom coming on earth. When we're taught to pray, our Father in heaven, and then it's these three things, May your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done, all three on earth as in heaven. That we are to be seeking the kingdom to come, to be further established on earth. In Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, Jesus makes this remarkable statement. Uh, this is after his resurrection and uh, just before what we call the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'll just wait a second. Let's, let's not go past this sentence too quickly. Have you read this in the Bible before? We read this and we think, yeah, yeah, okay. And what next? 
Uh, this is the, one of the most remarkable things Jesus has, has ever said. Because it's one of those things that it's either true or it's not, right? Either Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth now, or he doesn't. And then we might think that he doesn't because of the way things look uh, uh, often. But he says that he does. So it's either true or not. So he's either right or crazy, right? He's deluded, thinks he's something special when he's not. And people who claim to be followers of Jesus are people who want to say Jesus was right in what he said about himself. He's correct. We believe it. We follow it. We surrender to it. And one of those things is him saying all authority belongs to him. This is a kind of, it's, it's like Jesus is saying he's the most important person there is. And people who claim to be identified with him, Christians, are people who are also saying, Jesus is the most important person there is. His life, his way, his will is everything. A radical statement about being the sovereign, because that's what the sovereign does. The sovereign has all authority. Just to continue for a second. uh, Well, actually, this one's not up there. Let me make a statement. You know, when uh, Jesus is being, uh, when he's, in his trial with Pilate before he's crucified, the key question that Pilate is asking him, because it's been the key accusation, is that he claims to be a king. And this is seen as being seditious. So Pilate asks him, are you a king? Uh, and Jesus begins this conversation with Pilate in which he eventually says, I am a king, but my kingdom is not from this world, which is a way of saying it's not like the kingdoms of this world. It doesn't mean it's not for this world. As we see in the Lord's Prayer that God's kingdom might not be from this world, but it is for this world. <clears throat> May your kingdom come here on earth as in heaven. But his kingdom is different. But you see that whole relation, I mean, the whole discussion is about the kingship of Jesus. Uh, so much so that when he, Jesus is crucified, what is written on the cross above him, on this, uh, the, little, the title, it's called a titulus, and it says, <clears throat> Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And, you know, they mean this in a derogatory way, but in that sense it becomes uh, kind of ironic, right? <clears throat> right? We know he is the king. When the book of Colossians, Paul makes a statement about the new identity that believers have when they are connected to Jesus. He doesn't describe them as heaven-bound, the way DC Talk said it back in the 90s. Uh, any of you familiar with that pagan Christian music, DC Talk? You know, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. I was a big DC Talk fan back in the day. <clears throat> Um, they described as not as heaven bound, but as belonging to the kingdom. See, Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The redemption and forgiveness of sins, we, we got that part usually when we talk about the gospel. That's really important. Everyone who belongs to the kingdom is redeemed and forgiven. But it's important to understand our position even now as we belong to a different thing, a different family, a different sphere, um, a different realm, if you will. And that realm is God's kingdom. One last passage along these lines is um, looking to the future, the book of Revelation, when it talks about what will the world be in the future? What do we have to look forward to? Is it uh, disembodied, simply spiritual heaven where you float around on clouds, play harps, and are dressed like you're living in the first century A.D.? Uh, Not so much. You have this passage in Revelation 11, 15. 
seventh angel blows his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That sound familiar? And he shall reign forever and ever. From the hallelujah chorus. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Uh, The thing that was said about Jesus in Daniel is becoming true. The whole world, the whole earth is his kingdom, and he reigns forever. So see, the author of the hymn, Joy to the World, really got it right, really understood this. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Jesus is the Messiah, which essentially means anointed king in the way the word is used. He's the Lord and Savior. You know, even the titles Lord and Savior are royal titles. Um, You may be familiar with this, but those were titles that were associated uh, not just with Yahweh in the Old Testament, but in the historical context of the Gospels, they're associated with Caesar, with the emperor. The emperor is Lord and Savior. Um, Truly, so when the Christians start proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior, again, this this is dangerous uh, for them and ultimately becomes very dangerous for them. But Caesar was seen royally as the emperor, as the Lord, that is the master and ruler, the one who had ultimate authority, the savior, that is the one who protects the empire, who rescues it from its enemies and delivers it from trouble. These are all kingly duties. So you sum up as king, Jesus is bringing God's kingdom to earth. Heaven and earth meet again as in the garden of Eden. The gospel proclaims that Jesus is Lord, that is, the sovereign. He he has come to defeat all enemies of creation, to rule and reign in righteousness and justice, and to give blessing to God's people, to make all things new. In the hymn, Joy to the World, in the third verse, it says that he comes to make his blessings flow. You know, the next line, far as the curse is found. Sometimes we skip third verses in hymns. We don't, y'all don't do that here. I mean, David plays that because he knows it's good stuff. Yeah, but sometimes we miss the third verses. That's a huge third verse. <clears throat> he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Everywhere that badness or the evil has corrupted or caused the world to decay, Jesus wants to bring blessing to those areas. He wants to redeem them. <clears throat> God is on a redemptive mission in the world to bring blessing and salvation to the world by establishing his kingdom. And how does that happen? It happens when individuals surrender to the kingship of Jesus and are rescued and saved and reconciled by him. And then as people who are brought under the rule of Jesus begin to bring the rest of creation and culture and society underneath the lordship or the kingship of Jesus, that's when the kingdom is happening. That's how the kingdom comes. And if we're people who pray the Lord's Prayer, may your will be done, your name hallowed, your kingdom come here on earth as in heaven. Uh, To pray the prayer is also to to commit oneself to be part of God's answer to that prayer. We pray that you will do this. I have prayed it. How is God going to cause his kingdom to come? He's going to move in people to bring aspects of culture, society, your family, your finances, your relationships, all that under the lordship of Jesus, the way you do your business or think about social issues that are brought under his authority. Now, the church especially is to be that place where we should see God's 
kingdom in action, God's rule in action. It's the vision of seven hills to be the place where God's invisible kingdom becomes visible. That means people are surrendering to the authority of Jesus. He gets the, he gets the ultimate word in the decisions we make about life and the way we think. <clears throat> I believe that God intends the church as a community and the Christian as an individual to be a visible display of Christ's rule. And what kind of rule is it? It's a gracious rule. It's a transforming rule, a life-giving rule, where the king lays down his life for his people, defeats our enemies, and then lives forever to rule us. Um, When people embrace or surrender, trust and hope in Jesus as their king, then the kingdom of God is happening. It's present. And here's a couple of key questions. Is it possible that we see or don't see the kingdom coming to the degree that we submit or don't submit to Jesus as our king. Let me say it again. Is it possible that we see or don't see the kingdom of God coming to the degree that we submit or don't submit to Jesus as our king? That begs the question, or to make it more personal, are we being ruled by Jesus? So there's lots of people in our world and in our country, in our state, who claim to be Christians, right? And uh, yet we have lots of problems, right, (laughs) still in our churches, in our world, in our state, in our society. And that's because we aren't perfect. We're sinful. Uh, we We are saved completely by God's grace. We're also empowered with the Spirit. And shouldn't that make some kind of difference? We like to be forgiven, so we like the priestly aspect of Jesus' identity, don't we? We like that we can be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God. That's good. That's really good, and it should should be massively celebrated. But we don't really like to be ruled, do we? I mean, we're Americans, for crying out loud. Nobody rules us, and more importantly than that, we're Southerners, by golly. Ain't nobody, no government, nobody else going to rule over us. I mean, I know there's some imports here, but, you know, for the most part, we're Southerners. We imagine that to be ruled by anything would be oppressive. But what we have to understand that is if we are Christians, our primary identity is that we are citizens of Christ's kingdom, even before we are American or Chinese or German or Kenyan or Brazilian or Russian or whatever. And we should be the people who are thinking often about what, what, what should things look like if Jesus is in charge. The people who are often asking this question in the various aspects of our lives. What would this look like? What should this look like given Jesus' kingship? Given that Jesus is Lord? Given that I'm a Christian surrendered to his lordship? How can I bring that to bear upon this? Well, it's certainly not going to look tyrannical because we don't have a tyrant who rules over us. We have a gracious, life-giving Lord. What does it look like to bring that authority into the various aspects of our lives? Now, I don't know the answers to all of those questions, but it's the kind of question we ought to be asking on a regular basis for my marriage, for my parenting, for being a sibling or being a student or being a worker, owning this business, living in this community, uh, making these decisions with my time and energy and money. What does it look like for Jesus to be in charge of this, for his wisdom to come to bear on it? Wouldn't that make a difference? 
in our world. Uh, Just try to imagine what it would be like. You know, no one else is going to ask those questions. Only believers would be. Um, We don't like to be ruled in part because we don't understand, I think, that Jesus' rule is liberating, that Jesus' rule is life-giving, that it provides the themes of Advent. Remember what they were? Hope, peace, joy, and love. In fact, Christianity proclaims that there is no other way to have those things. You simply cannot have them outside the kingdom of God in any lasting or full sense. And so it's actually in surrender to Jesus as king that opens the door to hope, peace, joy, and love for the world. We can't get it right. Our science, our technology continues to develop and progress, but we as humans don't get any better. We just use those things with, as more creative ways to destroy ourselves. <clears throat> we can't rule ourselves. And Christians believe that we're not Christians because we're good or because we're better or smarter than other people. We're here today to say there is one good one. There's one good one who has all wisdom, power, and authority. And we look to him. We're desperate for him. <clears throat> if he doesn't come and help us, we'll have another 2015 like 2014 was in terms of its wars and injustice and problems. And so I guess the last uh, point to, to wrap this up is simply to say, what would it look like for us <clears throat> to take this serious, more seriously to not be self-serving or sacrificing everything we have for the tyranny of autonomy or the tyranny of our culture. <clears throat> Instead, to joyfully surrender to King Jesus. As the hymn says, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth, let us receive our King. It would mean joy for the world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to ask that, um, would you graciously and in spite of us, move in us even in these very moments to cause your power and authority to overcome us, to overcome the little person inside of us that stands up to you and thinks that we should have the right to say, to decide what's good for ourselves. We should have the right to decide uh, what is best. And instead, we defer to your holy wisdom. And we pray that that would be in us. Not that we are people who are self-asserting or driven, but people who are driven by the Spirit. People who can bring your joy, peace, hope, and love to the rest of the world by embodying it ourselves. Would you give us the grace to receive Jesus, not just as our priest, but as our prophet and king also. And I pray that the result for everyone here is a deeper sense of joy, a more abiding sense of peace, knowing that there is hope because you've promised to do things in the world. And so things can <clears throat> be redeemed, that, there, that love can enter in and conquer uh, evil, <clears throat> corruption, and bring healing. May it be so in Christ's name. Amen.